Well, it's springtime here in Northern Ireland, the month of March, and this week, especially here in this part of the world, we uh, often think of our so-called patron saint, St. Patrick. And around the world, all things Irish become popular. Well, last year, I did a couple of podcast episodes around this time of the year, one on St. Patrick himself, asking, was he a Roman Catholic? Or was he actually a Reformed Christian believer? The other episode of the podcast was on a very famous Irish man from Dublin called Arthur Guinness. You may have heard of him. And so I thought this year I would reprise those two podcasts, let you hear them over again, just as a special episode. So here we are. We've got St. Patrick first and then Arthur Guinness. So have a happy St. Patrick's Day, however you spend it. So we're coming close to the 17th of March, which is St. Patrick's Day. And in this short podcast, I want to spend a few moments thinking about our so-called patron saint. Now, I'm aware that I'll probably not please some of my friends, for there are huge differences of opinion about Patrick. Many Roman Catholic people hold Patrick in such high esteem that they will accept little or nothing about him that runs counter to the official nationalistic narrative. Many Protestants have traditionally been so apathetic about Patrick that they have been content to ignore him, leave it to their Roman Catholic friends to celebrate his life in whatever way they choose. Let's try to challenge both positions. And at the same time, let's encourage us in this modern age to consider our soul's welfare, as Patrick did in bygone days. I'm Bob McAvoy, and this is the Semper Reformata Podcast. So we're going to begin by looking at the myth of Patrick, Patrick the myth. And the myth of Patrick, of course, is big business and a big deception, all rolled up into one. In Ireland, Patrick's Day is celebrated in just a few places. The capital city of the Irish Republic, Dublin, is one such centre. In Northern Ireland, Patrick is most noticeably remembered on the 17th of March in the town named for the saint in Downpatrick. Recent parades and events in Belfast on that day have been trailed as cross-community, but in effect are simply naked expressions of sectarian Irish republicanism. Outside Ireland, however, Patrick has a huge following. One of the largest and most controversial parades in the world is held on St. Patrick's Day in the city of New York. Official floats are entered on behalf of many of the organisations within the city, including even the police department. The President of the United States hosts a huge party on the day, with invitations being sent to political leaders and celebrities from across the world. Meanwhile, the shamrock-bedecked Irish-American population swills its green beer and dreams wistfully 
of the old country. Yet many of the popular views about Patrick have no historical accuracy whatsoever. For example, it is said that he was responsible for driving the snakes out of Ireland, although it's highly unlikely that there were ever any snakes in Ireland at the time of Patrick. It's also unlikely that Patrick ever used a shamrock to explain anything, never mind the nature of the Trinity. Yet perhaps the most dangerous myth of all was dreamt up by Roman Catholic monks, who later wrote histories of Patrick, claiming that he was sent to Ireland by the Pope of Rome, that he landed in Ireland at Wicklow, that he converted the ruling heathen King of Ireland to Tara, that he climbed to the top of Crook Patrick to pray and have fellowship with God. The statue of Patrick erected at Tara and other such monuments, showing him in the garb of a bishop of Roman Catholicism, are both anachronistic and misleading. Moreover, there is no evidence for the alleged date of his death, March the 17th, or for his burial at Downpatrick, and yet the myths persist. See Patrick is a small village in County Down, and it is so called because Patrick allegedly sat down there on his way to Downpatrick, the seat of Patrick. And one of the biggest myths of all was that he was actually Irish. In fact, though he would have been of Celtic origin, he was most certainly not Irish at all, but from the British mainland. And finally, he did not bring Christianity to Ireland. There were already small groups of Christians meeting in Ireland before Patrick arrived. So we've looked at Patrick the myth. Let's consider Patrick the man. The truth about Patrick's life is a lot more mundane than the various myths. The only reliable documents that point to the history of Patrick are his own two documents, his confession and the letter to Corontacus. And both of those are acknowledged as being from the hand of Patrick himself, both written in Latin near the end of his life. They suggest that Patrick was born in Britain around the end of the 4th century AD. His father was Calpurnius, a Roman name, suggesting that Patrick was probably of noble birth. In fact, we know that Calpurnius was a deacon in the church and that he held an official position within the Roman administration in Britain. The family may well have been Welsh. We know that Patrick's native language was a Celtic dialect perhaps the predecessor of modern Welsh. At 16 years old, Patrick's life was shattered when a party of wild Irish marauders attacked his family's estate. 
Many of the servants were slaughtered in the raid, and Patrick, along with others from the villa, were taken into captivity. They were shipped to Ireland to be sold as slaves. As a slave, Patrick's life was unpleasant in the extreme. He would have experienced hunger and exhaustion, even before being sold to a sheep farmer. And now alone and in deep distress, Patrick sought the Lord. Like the psalmist of the Old Testament, Patrick was in a pit of despair when he cried unto the Lord for salvation. Do you know God always hears the prayers of the repentant sinner? And Patrick was wonderfully saved by God's sovereign grace alone. Out in the hills he needed no priest, no confession, no mass, no supplications to the Virgin Mary. Patrick himself put it like this. He said, The Lord opened the understanding of my unbelieving heart, that I might recall the sins and turn with all my heart to the Lord my God. Patrick's conversion was attested to by many of those who saw his life, who witnessed his love for others and the way that he practiced his Christian faith. Patrick had to wait some six years or more for the opportunity to come for his release from captivity. And when it did come, he took it and made his way by ship to his parents' home in Britain. At this time, Patrick records having seen a vision of a man calling him back to Ireland to preach the gospel. So Patrick became a deacon and then a bishop in the local church before making his way back to Ireland where he remained for the rest of his life. Of course, his task was enormous. Ireland then, just as now, was a divided land. There was no central government. There was much lawlessness and few Christians. Roman civilization hadn't reached Ireland, so there were no roads. Most places were hard to reach even on foot. And yet, spurred on by his simple faith in God, his love for the people who had treated him so cruelly, and his earnest desire for their conversion, Patrick willingly made the journey back. looked at Patrick the myth and Patrick the man. What about Patrick the message? What exactly was the message which Patrick carried to those wild warlike tribes on the island of Hibernia? Well, Patrick was a man of the book. Right throughout his writings, Patrick refers constantly to the Bible, to the scriptures. The Bible was his only rule of faith and practice. 
and that would in itself mark Patrick out as being different from the Roman Catholic Church of today, where the Bible is placed alongside tradition and is only interpreted in the light of dogma. Patrick admitted the sin of man and the need of conversion. He begins his famous confession with these words, I, Patrick, a sinner. He acknowledges his own unworthiness and his own sinfulness before God. He points out that there was a time in his life when he did not know God and that God had permitted the enslavement of his family because of his and their sinfulness. He admits that his turning to God only occurred after his understanding had been opened. And again, this differs from modern Roman Catholic religion, where people are said to be brought into a state of grace at baptism, and where thereafter adherents need to work to earn their place in heaven through a series of observances and actions. Poor Patrick, alone on the mountains without a priest for confession, or for penance, without a mass to attend, would have been lost under the present Roman Catholic system of religion. So Patrick was a man of the book. Patrick admitted the sin of man and the need of conversion, and Patrick reinforced the beliefs of the Apostles. Patrick did preach on the Trinity, although probably not with a shamrock. His confession contains many of the doctrines of grace, including God's free gift of free salvation for all sinners who would believe in him and repent of their sins. He taught that such believers should be baptised and that one day Christ would return to this earth after which there would be a day of judgment. So he reinforced the beliefs of the early apostles in the scriptures and Patrick was a living testimony to God's grace. Patrick lived out his faith. In those days the people of Ireland were largely illiterate. The distribution of literature was pointless and the authenticity of a message could be judged only on the conduct of the messenger. Patrick's message was reinforced by his humble and prayerful life. Patrick's message. He was a man of the book. He admitted the sin of man and the need for conversion. He reinforced the beliefs of the early apostles and he was a living testimony to what the Lord could do in the life of a sinner. So we've looked at Patrick the myth, Patrick the man, Patrick the message. Let's look at Patrick the misunderstanding. Let's ask the question, was Patrick a Roman Catholic 
or was he a typical Reformed believer? Well, certainly from what we have learned in this podcast, Patrick was not a Roman Catholic who came to Ireland to deliver the native Irish into the hands of the Pope. In fact, that happened many years later at the hands of, believe it or not, an English king. Patrick's sole task was to be a living witness for Christ and to bring other people into Christ's kingdom. His return to the land of his captivity makes him one of the bravest missionaries in the history of the church and the early autonomous Celtic church which developed in Ireland as a result of his efforts carried on Patrick's work for many years to come. Now Patrick was not perfect. Patrick didn't have all the understanding or all the light which the reformers had. Yet his understanding of the doctrines of grace and his testimony to the saving power of God in Christ witnessed to a biblical faith, not unlike the faith of the later reformers. For like Martin Luther, Patrick depended on God's free and sovereign grace for his conversion. And on a bleak hillside without the trappings of Roman Catholic sacramental religion, Patrick eagerly grasped God's offered salvation by faith alone. In response to Patrick's ministry, we would do well to live out our lives as he did, so that our neighbours and those who look upon us and want to persecute us in these days might see Christ in us as they did in Patrick. The Lord Jesus Christ said, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father which is in heaven. springtime. It's just two days to St. Patrick's Day, the great celebration worldwide for Ireland's patron saint. All over the world, people will be lifting glasses, glasses of Guinness, to toast St. Patrick. But who was Arthur Guinness? What would he think of the modern celebrations of St. Patrick's Day? I'm Bob McAvoy. And this is 
the Semper Reformata podcast. In Galatians chapter 6 and verse 9 to 10, we read, And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. As we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. Now you might wonder, what's that got to do with Arthur Guinness? Well, have you ever had a pint of Guinness? In my humble opinion, it's foul stuff. You simply can't understand why anyone would want to go out and drink eight pints of that in one evening, let alone one pint, and yet they do. Have you ever looked at a bottle of Guinness? There's a signature in that bottle, or on the can. It's the signature of Arthur Guinness. And the Guinness Company have been promoting that in recent years with their Arthur's Day advert every September, when we're all invited to raise a glass of Guinness to Arthur. I would venture to suggest that Arthur Guinness would be turning in his grave at that. So the question we want to ask today is, who was Arthur Guinness? Arthur was born in 1725 in Ireland. It was just 35 years after the famous Battle of the Boyne. And he was brought up within the Anglican Church, the Church of Ireland. His uncle, the Reverend Arthur Price, was the Archbishop of Cashel. And he left Arthur a legacy, a gift of £100 in his will. It was a huge amount of money in those days. And with that money, Arthur opened his very first brewery in Ireland, in Leaslip. Now, before we start to criticise Arthur for his chosen profession, let's remember what living conditions were like in that period in Irish history. Remember that the people of those days had no knowledge whatsoever of microbiology or bacteriology. No one knew how diseases spread. Recycling certainly hadn't been invented, so when they dumped their rubbish and waste, they often contaminated the very water sources which supplied their drinking water. Worse still, raw sewage ran down the streets and into the rivers. The infection rate in towns and cities was high and people were dying of it, and the result was that people began to drink alcohol instead of water. This was to avoid the possibility of infection, because the alcohol killed the germs. Of course, many were able to do this in moderation and benefit from it, but many couldn't. And the fact that the government had forbidden the importation of alcohol in 1689, with the result that people were setting up illegal stills, distilling their own spirits with high alcohol levels, made the situation even worse. The consequences were inevitable. Some historians refer to this time as the gin years, when drunkenness and debauchery and robbery and murder made Irish towns and cities very unsafe places to be. It was this awful situation that inspired people like Arthur Guinness to set up small breweries. He wanted to improve the social conditions, but how could he when so many were either dying of illness or falling victim to drunkenness? Well, there was one way. He could open a brewery. Arthur wanted to make an alcoholic drink that would be clean and infection-free, 
full of goodness so that poor people could have some nourishment. And of course, compared to the potching that the illicit distillers were making, its alcohol content was very low indeed. Guinness killed the germs that were in the water and was actually quite nutritious. So the old Guinness advert was rightly able to claim Guinness is good for you. A bottle of Guinness a day is still a great tonic. And until we became politically correct, every patient in the old geriatric wards of our hospitals had a bottle of Guinness every evening to drink. So young Arthur Guinness soon became very wealthy. And eventually he opened up his new brewery in Dublin. And as recent Guinness advertisements have reminded us, he took a 9,000 year lease on a four acre brewery at St James's Gate for an annual rent of £45. was while he was in Dublin that Arthur attended a service in St. Patrick's Cathedral to hear an evangelist called John Wesley. Wesley preached about Christ and him crucified for sinners. Those meetings continued, and during those services Arthur Guinness the Brewer came to saving faith in Christ. What a difference that made. He'd been set free from sin through the unconditional love of the Saviour. His determination to help others in service to Jesus became the driving force of his life. Arthur dedicated his life and his wealth to the service of those who were poor. He founded and financed the first Sunday schools in Ireland, one of a number of men who founded and run a hospital for the poor. He donated vast sums of money to charity to care for the poor, and he spoke out against the materialism and the selfish, uncaring attitudes of the wealthy classes. To work for Guinness in those days was a great privilege. In a day when people laboured almost slavishly for meagre wages, Arthur cared for his workers. He was at the time the best employer in Ireland, provided them with homes to live in and medicine and good salaries. Arthur married Olivia Whitmore, whose father was a grocer in the Temple Bar area of Dublin. They married in St Mary's Church in 1761 and together they had 21 children. Infant mortality rates were high and only 10 of them made it to adulthood. Their family descendants have included politicians, statesmen, bankers, missionaries and pastors. Guinness was, for a time, the Speaker of the New Zealand Parliament. Oz Guinness is a popular Christian apologist and author. He tells the story of an Irish widow who had fled to Scotland with her own two children. Her intention had been to commit suicide. In Scotland she heard the gospel and was saved, and returned home to Ireland, where she met one of Arthur Guinness's sons, and they married. And every day she prayed for their children, not just her own children, but for the next twelve generations of Guinness children. Her prayers were answered. That line of the family has kept the faith of their forefather Arthur, 
And four generations later, her family are still believers in Christ. What faith? She took God at his word. For he that is mighty hath done to me great things, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. Arthur Guinness was a huge influence for good in Irish society. He died in September 1803, and his mortal remains are buried in County Kildare. We shall meet him in glory. Glory.